A living culture provides an affirmative meaning for death through its myths and rituals. But today, in the West at least, death is a feared and a loathsome thing because it means annihilation, something T.S. Eliot put his finger on nearly a century ago when he said we no longer have the cultural tools or mythologies to infuse death with meaning. In a post-religious era, death is a kind of desolation and without a mythological or cultural story to feed or sustain us, we feel obliterated by it. We imagine dying means vanishing into the void and that it all is lost. As a result, death phobia lies at the heart of our institutions and endeavours, and nowhere is this more apparent than in the training of our health professionals and the services rendered by healthcare. Our fear of death is like a frenetic engine driving the development of limitless pills and potions and procedures engineered to deny and delay the inevitable at great cost to everyone involved. But resisting death is a denial of nature. If we look out the window into a garden, we can see the cycle of life and death everywhere. Life feeds on the death of everything, and death comes to all, whether by accident, design, disease or predation. But we've conspired against ourselves to live and die outside nature's law, without a tutor or a guide to navigate a journey none of us can avoid. And so, we have no affinity, or intimacy, or adequate language to bring to our dying. This is why we come to death and dying as rank amateurs. We're ignorant and alone, and too often afraid. That's why we struggle to tell each other, even long before death comes calling, that we'll be broken-hearted by death, by ours and those we love. But the broken-heartedness experienced by the living and the dying isn't the same thing. The secret theology of our rational, secular age is that the dead don't need anything from the living. If people who've died have lived morally, then believers in a hereafter say they're qualified to enter their heavenly reward. And if they haven't, then eternal damnation awaits. For atheists... The dead are simply dead, full stop. Either way, the living cannot and need not intercede on behalf of the dead, nor have a relationship with them. We've come to believe that death ruptures our capacity for a relationship with the dead because they're gone. They're gone because our lives are circumscribed by our concept of time, which is linear and always moving from the present to an infinite future. But consigning our dead to the past is the beginning of them being gone, and the consequences cut both ways. Dying people know they're about to disappear from the lives of the living. They know because, like us, they've been able to move on from the deaths of old friends and loved ones by putting them into the goneness of the past. But most of us don't foresee our annihilation when we consider the end of our days. We imagine our worst fears to be uncontrolled pain, losing control, dying alone, and maybe judgment day or a fear of the unknown.
But what really hits hard for many dying people is that soon they'll be forgotten. They learn that the living will mourn for a time and move on. And if the bereaved have trouble adjusting to old grandpa's death, then drugs and sympathy and counselling are readily available. So the language of loss has become the language of death. The upshot is we imagine the past and the dead are gone. And we grieve because our imaginations have been colonised to believe the dead have vanished. This is why we carry mementos, like photos and trinkets and objects, to remind ourselves of those we call the dearly departed. And it's why dying people these days are so fond of making farewell video clips so we can summon their digital presence from the void of death at funerals and wakes and death anniversaries. In name, these memorial services are about the dead, but they're not really for the dead. They're for us, the living, because they're about our mourning, our loss. So when dying people come to this awareness, they realise there can be no relationship between the living and the dead. They're about to enter the void of the long forgotten, where life and death go separate ways. According to this mantra, death ends relationships and the idea of reciprocity, that is, the mutual responsibility we have to the world and to each other that's rooted in the interdependence of all things. But if death ends relationships and reciprocity, it makes for a long and lonely experience for everyone concerned. But there's another story, and it wonders about the river of time and the past, and what it means to be an ancestor. It wonders where the life flows towards the past, and all that came before us. In this story, the dead aren't gone. They're destiny. This old story regards our modern feelings of loss as a new thing, a consequence of a crazy, mashed-up program that obliges us to feel orphaned when the people we love and care for die. But the trance of loss is just that, a kind of daze camouflaged as something rational and reasonable that consigns the past and the dead to the void of annihilation. One impact is that if we don't speak of the dead in the past tense soon after they die, people around us start getting worried. They start wondering about our mental health. Another is that annihilating our dead compounds our homelessness, meaning the felt experience of belonging to nothing and to no one, a devastating reality known to countless people around the world. Life and death are little-known mysteries today. But the truth is, life's mystery is more than just a human thing. It's what we participate in. Or to borrow from Shakespeare, life is the play, and the play's the thing. We're merely players. Death is a noble mystery too. But learning this requires a mythological sensibility and a humble appreciation of what death asks of us. <laughs>